many words that I can't hear In the poverty of my soul To the light pulled my true love's tears Now I know If I will crawl up out of this barren land Then I will crawl up I won't ride the shoulders of any man, but I am now alone. And I lift my eyes, you are there where I cannot find my way. For there, where I cannot hold my tongue, you are there where I have no. Like snakes in the ladder, I am swallowed every time. Trying to reach for something better, find a peace that's mine. And I can't give myself a good talking to, and I can't fool this bitter. Like to quit this cave that I'm walking through
Thanks, Mark and Dan. Um, I'm Chelsea Rodenheiser. I'm the Administrative Coordinator here at Maysway. And um, I want to welcome you tonight. If this is your first time with us, the Maysway is a community of faith here in Durham gathered around um, the gospel and seeking to enter into God's work here and in the world at large. Um, we have lots of ways to get connected throughout the week. And I'm looking for Elizabeth Eford, and I don't see her here, but... Um, one of the easiest ways to do that is through small groups, and you can find information about our small groups on our website. Um, also, we have a pub group on Thursday night, and Dan is the one to contact if you want any information. There's usually a reading that goes out on Thursday? <laughs> Maybe? Thursday morning. Yeah, yeah, whenever. Either before or after the gathering. So um, if you want to get on that, you can just ask him about that. Um, also, there's sometimes a group of people who get together to have dinner after church. And Lara, right back there on the couch, is the one to kind of grab afterwards if you're interested in doing that. Um, we have not a whole lot of announcements per se, but we had a really amazing celebration this morning with baptism. Um, Benjamin and Madeline Jakes were baptized this morning at Camp Chestnut Ridge. Is that right? Yeah, and there were a group of us gathered there, and it was a really, really special event, and we were really excited to participate with them in that. Um, we also have a speaker coming next week. Tim's going to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, just um, um, it worked out. We have been trying to do kind of listening to different voices that uh, uh, challenge our discipleship. And one of the things that we wanted to do was a, um, a Sunday that uh, focuses on feminist theology and the voice of women in scriptures. And so uh, Amy Laura Hall, who is a, uh, a, a divinity school professor, uh, I think a lot of you guys know uh, her either through school or um, through just socially or otherwise, is going to come tomorrow night we're gonna, or Sunday night. We're going to do a conversation on uh her life as a feminist theologian and what that means, what the struggles have been, and and uh, what are the what are what are challenges to us in terms of reading the text and worship that that can be kind of accentuated from those voices. So she's fantastic. So uh, I think you'll enjoy that. Awesome. Yeah, we're looking forward to having her. So for tonight, I wanted to also thank Mark again and the band. We have Dale and Tim with us tonight. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to start off. I'm going to read the prayer for today. Oh God protector of all that trust in thee, without whom nothing is strong, nothing is holy. Increase and multiply upon us thy mercy, that thou, being our ruler and guide, may so pass through things temporal, that we may finally lose not the things eternal. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Ah, 
Thanks, guys. Hey, um, one of the
of the things that I want to point out, and I'm hoping that I will do reasonably enough job, good enough job on the dialogue tonight for you to appreciate those first two songs that we did. What an incredible summary of the type of spiritual practices that we're going to talk about tonight. So I want to encourage you that when the podcast, Mark, when does the podcast, podcast usually pop up for us? Usually. Usually around Tuesday afternoon, I want to encourage you to listen to those two songs uh, again um, and listen to them in an explanatory way because there was ex- explanations there that are probably better than, than what I might throw at you today. So, Mark, fantastic work. Uh, we're definitely enjoying, uh, I mentioned this last week, uh, Mark's uh, uh, beginning as our lead artist, though he's been a, a significant artist for us for ages, but Mark is, uh, is just a delight to have him uh, as a key part of our leadership. So, hey, I want to give you an opportunity to stand up, uh, greet each other, offer each other the peace of Christ, and we will uh, jump into the dialogue here in just a, a moment or two. There's some amazing grapes back there and stuff, and coffee over here, so if you want that as well, go for it. So, uh, brief comment. It was really fun, uh, Phil and Susan, to baptize Madeline and Benjamin today. Uh, this, uh, you know, they're they're markers for me of the life of a man's way because I have. Uh, I think a lot of you guys know we, um, as a community, met in Phil and Susan's house for uh, maybe our first three or four months. Uh, eight or nine years ago and so Madeline and Benjamin were you know they were young and so it's it's kind of a marker to to their their uh, their growing up as well as just being a part of the community here and other communities so anyway it's really fun it's good to do that nice uh, uh, and thanks to the folks out at uh, Chestnut Ridge which is a nice camp about 15 miles from here they were very gracious to let us use their little chapel lake area so thanks for everybody a little part of that so um for tonight, one of the things I wanted to do was um, um, continue. One of the things I realized last week when Doug was here, and it's great, it was, it was so good that had such a good uh, crowd of folks to hear Doug, and it was fun to have a lot of folks from his church as well. It was a, a good opportunity for us to, to connect. And for me, it was fun. I, I didn't talk a lot about this, but last Sunday I had spoken in their church in the morning, and, um, and obviously you know, Doug was with us. And it's really interesting to see uh, common interest in ministry in really different contexts. And uh, one of one of his contexts is their community is a bit older than ours, actually a good bit older than ours, and uh, North Raleigh and some different kind of things that they had. But it was really fun to to connect and to. It was funny too for me as a part of of my uh, doing their dialogue. Um, uh, you know, to, to hear the questions that I'd heard. Anyway, it was, it was really fun, and I appreciate that. One of the things I realized is we, we kind of started this conversation of apathetic spirituality, the kind of prayer and uh, an experience of God that goes beyond words. And I was really aware that Doug was only going to get about halfway through what he was planning to do um, last uh, week. In fact, I was talking to his wife afterwards, and she said, I, I, you know, I wonder whether he should have started with the, the practice area or the explanation area. And I, I was appreciative of the explanation because it was very interesting and enlightening uh, to me in lots of ways. But I wanted to carry that out because I, I kind of knew where he was going on that. So that's kind of our goal today is to kind of keep talking about uh, this practice and this whole ancient tradition. 
tradition of, of apophatic spirituality. Uh, in fact, what he was talking about is one type of prayer that is one of the most deeply represented um, in many of the oldest and my most vital forms of the Christian tradition. And it's an experience that I've had some. It's, I, when, when I have practiced this form of prayer and spirituality, I'm always aware that I'm like somebody who appreciates art going to an art class where the art teacher is being very encouraging, even though I'm like cranking up some really bad stick figure type of thing. This isn't my normal way of being, but a lot of times as I study this, I realize this is probably one of the most important steps that I need to take and continue to take in my own life of prayer and experience of God. Now, I'll share more about that, uh, but uh, anyway, so I wanted to continue on that uh, this week, but what I want to do first is hopefully, and I'll be watching the clock tonight, see if we get all the way there, is I want to affirm this um, practice both in testimony and in actual practice of it. But before doing that, I want to frame it biblically as well and, and, and in terms of the history of Christian traditions because I think that's really important as well. And Sarah, I think you're going to read um, a text from us. You have it in front of you. It's in Romans 8. Um, this is a, a great chapter, one of the most uh, significant chapters in the New Testament in terms of explaining the relationship of humans and creation with with God's intent. And um, and if you'll, I think you'll catch the significance of this as Sarah reads. Thanks, Sarah. So there are lots. I mean, if you if you wanted to get interested in studying Romans, you could read the rest of your life. Never eat again, drink again. I guess that wouldn't be a very long life if you didn't drink again. But you know, you would you could, you could go for as long as you wanted to. There's so much written. And one of the interesting things about Romans is that it's it's a text that doesn't spend much energy with how. Like, you know, I read, since the Spirit of God dwells in you, I'm like, my natural reaction is, how does that work? Uh, and, and, and Romans spends very little energy, if any at all, explaining the hows. What Romans is very committed to is the what's. What are the realities of the world that we live in? And how are those realities shaped by the resurrection of Christ? And this is one of those passages that really hits that hard. Um, I, 
of all the volumes of people that have written beautifully on Romans, uh, one person that I, I that I think a lot of you appreciate that that I do as well that I, I did some just kind of review reading on this week is N.T. Wright because I knew that he'd written a really nice explanation or or description of what's happening in this portion of, of uh, Romans. So there are lots of other people obviously that have written on this, but I'm going to give you a little bit of his description of of what what's being described here in Romans 8. And one of the things that we're being talked about is this contrast. We see this contrast between life and death. And, and for, uh, for N.T. Wright, this is a good explanation, is that Paul talks a lot about the differences between God's spirit and the word flesh. Now, this is where it gets really weird. We do not use the word flesh the way it is used by Paul or the way that it's used in the New Testament normally. When you hear spirit and flesh, it might be very natural to think that we're talking about something that is not physical versus something flesh that is physical. That would be the, maybe the natural hearing in our culture. But the way Paul is using this, and try to hold on to this because you'll get lost in the passage if you can't hold this idea, is he's talking about things that pertain to God. God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, God's presence in the world, and the things that fight against God's presence in the world. So flesh for Paul is not the physical body, um, but, but is more anything and everything that drags us away from an awareness of God's grace, love, and mercy. So maybe Paul, if you were, if Paul were your spiritual director and you were saying, you know, my obsession with, um, I don't know, NFL fantasy sports. I mean, I'm just constantly, I'm, I'm like Mark Williams. I'm making a trade every 10 seconds. I mean, I can't even, I, I, I just think of people from the lenses of professional football teams, uh, which is very not Mark Williams. Uh, but it, it, Paul might say, well, that's indeed very fleshly because in some ways you don't seem to be very aware of a gracious God um, when you're playing fantasy football, so to speak. So that's how this term is being used. But notice the contrast that's being kind of conveyed in this passage. This is the important part of it, is this idea that God's presence and God's spirit brings life. It brings real life. And there's an implied criticism here that there's certain things that aren't really life-giving that we might think are exciting or fantastic, but God's Spirit brings us to the places where we experience real life, the way that God has intended for us to experience it, and the way that Christ's resurrection has kind of made space for that to happen. So the point behind this kind of first part of this, these first kind of three or four verses, is this idea that God's Spirit is the source of life for us. This is where we experience that. And, and, um, and many of the things that we would say are the most deeply meaningful, life-experiencing parts of our lives, things like gratitude, generosity, kindness. Uh, Doug last week mentioned kind of the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians. Those things, according to the, the writer here, come from the Spirit of God. As we experience those things, we experience them from God's Spirit that, that dwells in us. And that's the other part of this that's really significant, is that he's making the idea that not only do we experience life from God's Spirit, but he locates God's Spirit within us. Now, this is where the, the how part of me kind of kick, like, how does that work? And I have a really 
brief explanation of that. I don't know. <laughs> but, but this is what the writer is saying to us, is that God's spirit not only dwells in us, but it brings us and gives us life. Now look down at verse 12, where we, it kind of changes the paragraphs here. He talks about, really makes the same point about flesh and life. Uh, according to the flesh, you will die. By the spirit, you will live. This idea that God's spirit is always driving us toward life. Um, but then in verse 14, we get this, for we are led by the spirit of God, um, for all who are led are the children of God. You did not receive a spirit of flavor, slavery to fall back into fear. Now, what we're getting there is we're getting a old, rich, Old Testament image that Paul's, especially his Jewish readers, would have gotten that immediately. He's making an analogy to the greatest moment in their spiritual history, and that was being led in the Exodus out of slavery in, in Egypt by the Spirit of God. And so we're getting this kind of image that the Spirit leads us from things that hold us in slavery to things that direct us in life. So that's so he's making the same point, but he just kind of dropped an image that his readers would have said, oh, okay, that's what you mean by God's spirit. That's what you mean by life. We remember the story that everybody that was kind of led out in the wilderness, they all panicked numbers of times. They wanted to go desperately back to something that was normal, something that was familiar, but was not life-giving to them. And the spirit kept driving them to something better, something that was beyond their imagination. In fact, we remember the story. They looked at this land that was given to them, and they're first looking at it. They were scared to death of it. They're like, my God, these people are huge. We can't dwell in this land. We'll be killed there. And, and this, the Spirit had to keep dwell, kind of pushing them to something that was good and gift and was given to them. So they would have gotten that. Now look at verse 15 and 16. This is for the sake of our conversation tonight. Um, it's probably the most important uh, of this. It says, when we cry, this is the very end of 15, when we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness within our spirit that we are the children of God. And there's other parts of Romans that talk about it. There's some aspect of our life where we actually do not convey words of our experience, but the spirit that dwells, remember he's located the spirit within us. It's actually the spirit within us that drives us toward an experience of God and the presence of God and the goodness of God. Um, it's, and it's something that can be not reduced simply to words. And so that, that text right there, and there's several others. Dan and I were talking on the phone, and you mentioned like a bunch of others in the New Testament. But this is a description of, of what Doug was talking about in terms of apophatic spirituality, an experience of God, a, a connection from God's spirit within us to the presence of God that goes way beyond words. And, and we love words. I mean, this is a culture of words. I mean, I was, I'm, I was thinking, as a student, I do nothing but read words, convey words, repackage words, cite words. I mean, we, I mean, words are like not only the tool, but they're almost like the icon of our being. And for most of you, you're probably in professions where words are absolutely essential. But 
one of the things that we can remember is that words also can be very trivialized. Like, you know, you're listening to a really bad song, and it's about something that you might value, love, lament, pain, injustice. But the words of the song trivialize it to the point where, like, I can't even get to the point of this. This is so poorly written. Or, for example, um, I've, I've told you guys this story before. I grew up in a very, very theistic God-centered environment. So God words were used for everything, absolutely everything. Like my in my family, one of the most common terms was being led. The implication of saying like I was led was the description of God in some way directed me to do that. So that was what was being conveyed. And my aunt and grandmother and family would say, you know, I just we were thinking about cooking today. And I felt led to make sandwiches. <laughs> and you're kind of like, really? I mean, I mean, you know, and I, I was, I, I mean, I, I was a bit of a questioning jerk even at like 12 or 13. And I'd often say, you know, Momo is what I referred to my grandmother. Momo, God actually directed you to make sandwiches? I mean, how did that happen? I would like to be led to, I don't know. Uh, I just know that I was being led tomorrow in some way. But we used a lot of God language. And a lot of times, you know, for me, that was one of my struggles at times, is the grandiose language didn't match the experiences that were being described. I remember listening to a Christian speaker one time talking about how she felt so led to speak to another person that it was amazing that God made all the stoplights green from her beginning to the end of her destination. And I, you know, my brain, this is what I do, is I think, okay, tell me all the people who got red lights crossing your path that were trying to have equally as important conversations with somebody else. So sometimes our language can, can fails us in conveying the depth of an experience. What we're being told in this passage about uh, from, from Paul is the idea that in there's an experience of prayer, an experience of communication with God that goes beyond our language and our awareness. And it's an experience that drives us toward all the things of the Spirit, which in Paul's language is code language for real life. Life as we were created to enjoy and experience and to experience eternally. Um, so like last week, I thought this was a really good description, is that um, Doug was talking about various levels of consciousness. And I'm not going to say this exactly the way he said, but this is how I heard it, is that there's, there's one level of, of, of kind of awareness that we have, like desire. Like, like right now, even speaking this dialogue, there's somewhere in my soul that says, you know what? Some bluebell vanilla ice cream, now available in North Carolina, would be really, really good. And then, and then even I can add on that, going, yeah, the cookies and cream is great, but the vanilla bluebell is like the greatest thing ever invented on earth. So there's one level that we have that we, we just live in desire. That, and he was talking about that's one kind of part of our experience. I think he talked about wanting a cheeseburger. And there's another level of our experience that looks at our desires. And this is the part of me that says, I can't believe I'm having another cheeseburger. Or I can't believe, you know, there was like a whole package of Bluebell ice cream in the freezer. And I think I had two, I, no, actually three mugs of that tonight because it's Sunday night. It's a 
been a long day and I probably deserve some ice cream, but you know, you can't eat but so much ice cream before it starts killing you. That's the kind of dialogue that we live in, this kind of desire and then our own kind of exploring that desire and kind of curbing that desire or pushing the desire toward better things in our life. And that tends to be kind of where a lot of our spiritual life is. I should pray more. I should be more grateful. Uh, I really don't like that person, but maybe I'll pray for that person or this person annoys me or there's a person in need. Should I respond to them? Or I mean, a lot of our spiritual life kind of goes back and forth between desire, not desire, looking at your own desires. Is this like... In, in my own experience, a lot of it, we, we were kind of, we were fundamentalists. So we started with a list of desires that were inappropriate. And, and we were talking about this last night. There's these things that you just don't do. And then you start noticing people that do them that seem to be like happier than the people who don't do them. And you're like, maybe this is wrong or this is right or maybe I'll talk to somebody about this. And, and so a lot of our spiritual life hovers in that realm of desire and curbing desire and trying to reshape our desires. But what Doug was talking about is that there's something that goes beyond this world of desire. Something for Paul, the desire, not desire, all that stuff is the spirit versus flesh conversation. What leads me to life? What leads me to not life? One bluebell spoonful might lead me to life. 48 might not. I mean, it's somewhere. And where's the magical number? And I grew up in a tradition that would have probably tried to figure out, you know, like 21.3 spoon spoons uh, would be where life ends, so to speak. So this is what Doug was talking about, is that in some ways, there's a spirituality that lifts us beyond this kind of mundane, driven, gut type of thing that lets us experience the goodness and graciousness and love of God, which I think is one of the things that we all desperately want to experience. Let me give you an example of this. One of the things that, and we're going to talk about a few practices tonight, but there are a variety of practices that are designed to kind of get us out of that, as Doug put it, cheeseburger or no cheeseburger type of conversation to an experience of the greater love of God. For example, one that we've done in our worship gatherings, but it's probably been more than a year or so before since we've done this, is Lectio Divina. How many of you guys have heard of, of Lectio Divina? Kind of half the room. It, this is an ancient prayerful tradition of reading the scriptures. And I, uh, this week, just to remember this, got a bunch of articles and books and things from my library and just kind of piled them up and started remembering what people have said about Lectio Divina, the kind of the prayerful reading of the Bible. And this comes from uh, um, Father Luke Dysinger. He's uh, um, uh, in the Order of St. Benedict. He's a monk in Valermo. Um, this is a really good description. This is one of the best of kind of experiences that happen in Lectio Divina. The first is what he calls as Lectio. It's the reading of the biblical text. Actually, in our worship gathering, we do Lectio every week. As a group of people, we read scripture text together, whether we do it in the dialogue or before the Eucharist or um, as a, a, the prayer that Chelsea read today, things like that. We do that every week. Um, and that's what he, they, people who practice this and teach this would say is a first level of experience. But then another level, and what the practice of Lectio Divina does, is ask you not just to read scripture, 
but to meditate on Scripture, to ruminate on it. Let Scripture marinate in your life. And so if you've ever done this before, usually a text has read publicly, and then you're asked very specifically what words or phrases stand out. As you listen to this text together, what speaks to you? With the assumption that what Jim Thomas hears and what Elizabeth Cobb hears is probably different because you've brought different lives to this moment. Um, So that's kind of a second experience. And then a third experience is what they call oratio, which is prayer. That in, in some ways we can read scripture, we can listen to it personally, and then it can drive us to pray. There might be something in the text. It may happen to you every week when we gather. You might hear something that you say, I need to pray. I need to pray for more gratitude. I need to pray for greater endurance. I need to pray for more patience. All of those things. But what the monk is saying here is besides those three very common experiences with Scripture is a fourth experience that he calls contemplatio. Let me read this. These are great words. Finally, we can rest in the presence of the one who has used the word as a means of inviting us to accept the transforming embrace of God. No one who has ever been in love needs to be reminded that there are moments in loving relationships when words are unnecessary. It's the same in our relationship with God. Wordless, quiet rest in the presence of the one who gives us, who loves us, has a name in the Christian tradition, contemplatio, contemplation. Once again, we practice silence, letting go of our own words, this time simply enjoying the experience of being in the presence of God. Now, contemplatio is not something that we experience all the time. It's not something that is guaranteed. It's not something that always happens when people practice Lectio Divina. In fact, I've read books of people who've made this practice for years before they ever experienced contemplatio. But this is what Doug was talking about, which is a really significant reminder. I don't know about you, but a lot of times my prayer life lives in that cheeseburger, no cheeseburger, bluebell, no bluebell conversation. I'm praying and I'm looking at myself praying and sometimes laughing at my words. And and all the while, I sometimes know there's a struggle that I'm actually trying to place God in my paradigm. And, and, and get maybe God to do my bidding or see things my way or gently challenge me a little bit. But there's always an experience of prayer that is beyond the smallness of my own life to the richness, the giant quality of God's love, which is really difficult for me to understand. I want to love you, myself, my family unconditionally. I struggle with that. We all struggle with that. So when we talk about God's unconditional love, it's very difficult for us to experience that fully because we don't experience it fully just in the norms of our life. And contemplatio is an experience of prayer when we get past the, the, the maneuverations, which are not inappropriate. God, speak to me, love me, know me, be with me, all of those things, to just an experience of being known and loved by God. In about three weeks, one of my favorite people on earth, Uh, Phil Anderson is going to come and speak to us about Brennan Manning. And Phil has an amazing, amazing story. Somebody's going to have to help me because my brain had just clicked off. What is his book, his first book? Running on Empty. Running on Empty. And this is 
fills, if you want to read this, it's a great book. It talks about his life as a high-powered, saving-the-world executive with young life. And the amazing emptiness that he experienced spiritually while he was doing incredible things. And he had, from pain to lament to change, an incredible story of, of the encounter of God's love. It's wrapped around, I, I don't know if you've heard this, George, his encounter with Brennan Manning. He'll, 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 he'll tell that story in full. You probably can Google it and find it on, or find it on YouTube. But he's going to talk about an, a personal experience of this in about three weeks that I cannot wait to hear. I've heard this many times, but Phil is been my mentor for almost 20 years. But this is what we were really trying to get at these last couple of weeks is how do we experience and be aware of God's love that moves beyond the circumstance of our lives and even our words that we wrap around our lives to where we simply rest in the love of God. Because for me, that's my life never fully demonstrates how great God's love is. There are, there are often more frustrations than good experiences, but this is why this practice is so incredibly life-giving. Now, let me turn this to you. We're kind of coming to the testimony part of this, um, and here's simply my question for you, and I'll maybe share a little bit from me on this, but have you experienced this, this, what the monk called contemplatio, what Doug called apophatic spirituality, an experience of simply resting in the love of God that does not orient around words or a specific experience where you say, this was great, I prayed for it, and God blessed me with it. Uh, can, can a couple of you share, have you, have you ever had that experience? This is not something that I think is easy to, to experience, but are there a, is there a testimony or two on that? And there are lots of different practices to experience this. Yes, sir, okay. I'm so glad you said that, Sarah Kay, because centering prayer is one of the things that I hope this year we can find the right way to do that, both kind of in our worship gathering but in our community. Uh, way back in the early days of Emmaus Way, we had a, um, a silent 
gathering for centering prayer, that five to ten of us would just gather in our little loft above Francesca's and sit in silence for 20 to 30 minutes. And, you know, by the third minute, the first, I'm, I'm like screaming in my head, like, oh my God, this is just weird. And, and then, because I, I live this world of explanation and words and figuring things out and trying to help people figure things out. And it's so funny how, I think one of the things you're saying, Sarah Kate, I have never figured out my own anger. I've never been able to put that in a formula where I come up with three things that I need to do about my anger. Uh, what I am able to do from time to time, and I've had powerful experiences of, of experiencing God's love so profoundly that having experienced God's love, I'm aware that I'm not angry anymore or I'm not angered in that moment. And so that's a great test. And you, had, you really sought that out. How, how did you learn to begin doing centering prayer? Interesting, and, and this is one of the things that I've, I've always struggled to learn, but disruptions in life, and having a baby is a massive disruption. We were, Shannon, we were laughing about it changes your brain, the way you organize your day. It's a massive disruption to life. For some of you, changing jobs, uh, changing programs, going to school, these are massive disruptions. But disruptions like that not only take away space, but they create new space. Like for you, maybe it was nursing and kind of the, that, that endless cyclical rhythm of, you know, just having a child fed and clean um, that created a different space than what your life had at that point. Not that there was bad space in the previous experience, but the disruption opened your eyes to something new, which I think for a lot of us, disruption is something that we hate, absolutely hate. So that, that's a great, but you had to go and find that. And these are, and this is interesting, what we're talking about with these practices these are deeply rooted in the Christian tradition, but I will say this, and there's reason for this, but in the historic context of the Reformation, these were things that we became deeply nervous about. Things like art and music and expression and experiential prayer and those mystical traditions became things that our, for those of us who are Protestants or grew up in Protestant traditions, we became really nervous about those things. And ultimately, 50 or 40, 50 years ago, I think we began to experience our bankruptcy. That we were fantastic at analyzing the Bible and, and knowing that there are 17 uses of the gerund in a phrase like this, but missing these types of experiences. And there's nothing wrong with reading the text. That's a, a powerful experience. In fact, Lectio is deeply rooted in the reading of the text, but we forgot how to read it this way. Anybody, that, thank you, Sir Kate. Um, anybody else that wanted, yeah, Jim.
Anyway, it's interesting. We've had some fun with that in terms of in our um, Advent gatherings. We've made a labyrinth in Emmaus Way. I'm, I'm not sure we can do that here, but we did it in our old space, and it's it's powerful. Did you find that hard to do, Jim, for you personally? appreciate you saying that for two reasons. One, it's a great plug. We're going to talk a lot about prayer this fall and reading of scripture and its relationship with that. And the second kind of series that we're going to do right before Advent is going to be on the body. And that's actually why I took that little tangent today to talk a little bit about spirit and flesh is that one of the things that we've been hardwired into believing is that spiritual things are not physical. And so we have kind of alienated the whole sense of our body as it relates to prayer. And I think this is why people who have done body prayer, yoga, all types of things, find that that there's an opportunity for them to have this experience that the non-physical practices don't have. Chelsea also points out an interesting thing as well. Like, for example, if you wanted to, like, organize a business or an organization or something like that, if you asked me to do that, you would be poor really fast. I do not have that gift or capability. Uh, you should ask Jenny Nicholson or Sarah Kate or Ben Haas or people like that who can do those things. And you know what? Part of my life is I'm not driving myself to hope that I will be a good organizational person because I do not have that giftedness. And as we talk about apophatic spirituality, this is one of the things that we all have different gifts. We all have different capabilities. Um, Sarah Kate, we had a conversation about this years ago, three or four years ago, about your yearning and having that passion and desire. And I was like, you have a giftedness that's not natural to me. I would say to you in my testimony, this is one of the ways that I believe in the goodness of God. If you were to ask me, why do you believe in God? The answer would be rooted in these experiences because they are not natural to me. I know that when I've had moments of contemplatio and I have to work hard, eight-day retreats or you know changes of rhythm, vacations, things like that to do that. But for me, I'm the type of person who has been given the gift of criticism. I mean, I look and see what's wrong in the world. I listen to an hour of CNN. I watch the news. I do those things. And I get so angry. I want to thrust my head into the television and scream at people and say, can't you see that, especially the Christian stuff, where people are talking about how their faith drives them to be more competitive and more successful and uh, 
better armed or whatever. I mean, at that point, like my head is like in front of the television. I'm like about to lose it. There's, you know, that's what I'm able to do is I'm able to sometimes see what's wrong and maybe see what's connected. But I don't have that gift, the one that Sarah Kate has and other people have in our community. And so one of the things that when we talk about spirituality in this way, remember we're rarely ever talking about it individually. As if you did something personally, like Sarah Kate's centering prayer is never never alienated from Asa or Luke or this community or things that she does professionally, all of those things. She's always rooted in those communities when she does those practices. And I think that's one of the things that we need to remember is part of our vows as a community is that we share practices together. We help each other to, to do things that for some is not so easy to do. Um, in the last, like, I think I can do this in 11 minutes. Uh, Mark, just start playing some music if I miss on this. But I want to talk about one practice that I think we can talk about here, maybe even do here, but you can do easily. Um, and and th- th- you could actually start doing this now. But let me remind you of this, that this is nothing new. It's something we've done before, but it's something that often can lead to contemplatio, that kind of awareness of resting in God's love. But like any practice, these are not hit-and-run experiences. Their power and their meaning comes in repetition. They, they, uh, uh, I think those of you who are musicians would say this. A great song becomes greater the more you play it, the more you listen to it, the more you think about it. It's not something that you listen to once and say, I got it. I, I got what this is all about. So let me talk about one of the practices that has been deeply significant. We've done this many times, but I want to reframe this again. And Mark has framed our music tonight to help us do this, is the practice of the examine. The examine is a practice of looking at our own consciousness and awareness. That's part of its power is looking at what are we aware of? What are we not aware of? Where do we need to move from our awareness? And the examine roots around two really simple questions. You've heard this from me many times, but let's say them again. One is a question of consolation. It could be as simple as this. What in this day am I most grateful for? What am I grateful about? And then desolation, what am I least grateful about? Where am I experiencing gratefulness and where am I experiencing an absence of gratefulness? And if you want to root this biblically, look at the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Henry Nouwen does an amazing explanation of this story in Matthew 20 that orients around gratitude. It's a story about God inviting us into gratitude without even telling the story. And I know some of you don't know it. It's a reminder that gratitude is absolutely essential to experiencing the love of God, this apophectic knowing of God's love. But notice that these questions, consolation and desolation, can be asked in lots of different ways. You don't even have to ask it in a, you can ask it in a more theistic way. Where did I experience the greatest presence of God in my life today? And where did I experience the greatest absence of God? Uh, presence of God, absence of God, gratefulness, absence of gratefulness. But these two simple questions, Ignatius was the one who made these famous. And he said, you can skip and toss 
everything in your spiritual prayer life out on need if you're busy, but don't not do the examen. His thought was it takes about one to 11 minutes. This is something that you should do every day. And Ignatius's passion was not with the monks that he led or the priests that he knew, but it was the people of the village, the people who farmed and owned shops. He was like, this is something that you can do that will draw you into an awareness of God's love. Here's a simple way to do this, and it can be done as a group. Um, is literally the way I do the examen is I often light a candle. And the candle to me represents God's ever-present light, mercy, and love. It's there because I don't want to remember that. So it's good for me to have something physical and visual to look at to remind myself that God is present. And the practice is this simple. Sit in silence. Sit in silence for five minutes, three minutes, 15 minutes, uh, whatever time allows you to do, sit in silence and then ask those questions. And the response to those questions can be lots of things. You can remember them. You can write them down. You can paint them. You can just make a note. You can keep a journal of this. But just ask the questions and remember your response to those questions. And then like shampoo, Repeat a lot. And one of the things that where the power of the examen comes is not in the moment, but in looking at having done this 30 times, 50 times, and realizing that I, like what I might experience in the examen is, Tim, your world has no experience of a loving God whatsoever when you are watching your kids play soccer. <laughs> you know, my competitiveness is one of the things that draws me decisively away from an experience of a loving God. Those are things that I learn and examine because I keep answering the same question the same way when I was watching something competitively or, you know, I was, you know, I'm, I'm watching the Duke Carolina game and I get a text from Dan that says, yeah, you guys suck and I'm like I'm going over to Dan's house to kill him you know <laughs> there's there's no sense of God's love in those things but that's one of the things that the examen can do now what I would like for you to do just to taste this tonight is with like four people five don't do a lot of people you don't have time for this like three or four people just turn lean into each other um, no need to grab candles but if you're like if you, if you want to you can but i just would love for a couple of you in just very small groups to ask that question what are you grateful about today what are you not grateful today? My purpose in this is not to lead us to some ecstatic spiritual experience. My purpose is to just show you how simple these questions are and how probably how readily you can come up with an answer to them. So just do that real quickly with the three people that are sitting beside you, two people that are sitting beside you. Uh, everybody won't have a chance to speak. But what are you grateful for today? And what are you? Where have you? Where have you experienced the least amount of gratefulness? So go for that. And I'm going to interrupt this really quickly, but go for that. Okay, guys, sorry to interrupt. I have one quick question for you. Um, was that, was for, for most of you, was that fairly easy to do? Could you conjure up something that was, that you were grateful for and something that you weren't grateful for? 
Um, this was not to lead you in some incredibly, uh, we didn't get you know, profound experience, we didn't have time for that. But what I wanted to convey to you is that you have, for the most part, readily framed answers to those questions. And, and if you were to sit in silence, your answers to those questions would even deepen. And I used to do this on youth retreats. I wouldn't say, hey kids, we're doing the examen, but at night we would sit around and talk about gratitude. Um, there, I have friends that do this at the dinner table every, um, every evening with their family or with roommates. Or This is a practice that fits into your life because you can do it in the midst of the life that you, you live already. Um, a couple quick things on this that I want, I want to... Why I, I hope that we can start doing more of this is desolation and consolation. And Mark has framed the next uh, couple songs that we're doing in these categories of consolation and desolation. Um, and I, here's why they're so important. Is when I experience my desolation, my absence of gratitude, that is the thing that tells me often what is robbing me of an experience of God's love and mercy. I need, it's the last thing in the world I ever want to think about, but it's often a very obvious description of what is robbing me of an experience of God's love. Or in desolation, I might think of a loss. And that loss conveys a yearning that tells me the thing that I'm yearning for. These are not things that we want to do. This is part of the power of this practice is that we're answering a question that we usually want to repress every day. But that points me to what is robbing me of God's love. The question of consolation is probably what Sarah Cade is experiencing in Centering Prayer is the, the, the ability to just rest in a sense of gratitude and the sense that God is lovingly present to my life this day, this week, this month. One of the things that Josh Busman has started for us that is going to blossom, but we've just thrown it up as a blog right now, is we're constructing a prayer book at Emmaus Way that uses some of the prayers that we do, prayers that we've written, music that the music is so essential to our prayer lives. That exists as a blog right now, and I can't pull up the URL. Do you know it, Ben? Yeah, it, it's, it's going to blossom. Josh just got it started before heading uh, across the ocean. But the music tonight is, is designed to help us remember that music can be absolutely central to our experiences of consolation and desolation. So, Mark, I think it's, you have framed the music tonight to kind of touch both of those. Is that, is that right, bud? That is true. Yeah. That is true. Ben Haas asleep at the soundboard. Yeah, <laughs> That's my desolation. <laughs> I'm going to have Trigger read a verse for us as we head into this. I want to say this weekend especially, I'm grateful for my friends and in particular the folks sitting on the two couches over there. I love you guys. Um, and this is from Romans 8, 26, and 27. Says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. That very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The word of the Lord. So the second song we're going to do, everybody here pretty much is, is familiar with hard times, but the second song we're going to do is one we haven't done before. 
hard sun. And that to me, that, that verse is what sort of encapsulates to me what the second song is about. Um, you have to sort of be creative with imagining what the lyrics mean and where they go. But I think that's the overall spirit to me of the second song uh, here in just a minute. Why don't we stand together? Um, please sing along with us uh, for hard times. And then I'll sort of get us singing hard sun together as well. But uh, please, please sing along with this one as it, as it seems to fit.
venture a uh, broad, kind of probably controversial and maybe unfair statement that all, all of us are probably not going to be good at this exercise. And I say that because I think I've talked to enough of you and I know myself well enough to know that we are a people who like goals and we like achievements. Uh, you know, when you're playing the conversation game and you're throwing the ball back and forth, this is even how we narrate our lives a lot. You know, where, where'd you go to school? What degree did you get? What, well, you know, we like accomplishments. And we like to measure each other up against our own accomplishments and say, oh, UNC, huh? Well, I went to Duke, so, you know, that's the, yeah. let's, let's, let's measure them up a little bit. So I think one thing that we're going to find hard about these spiritual disciplines, about these spiritual practices, about the exam and about apophatic prayer, is that you don't get a certificate for it. Because in some sense, you don't ever achieve it. It's not something you spend a little bit of time in, you dabble with, and you get there, and then you move on. Those that have become the, the, the saints of our tradition who have spent their lives in prayer, who have spent their lives in meditation, when they get to the end of their lives, they, they say things like, it, it, it's all straw, that I never quite accomplished it. In some sense, I was just trying to catch up all the time. I think we spend so much of our life thinking that we're going to beat God to a destination. We're going to have it all prepared. We're going to accomplish it. And then God can come, you know, put a little blessing on it if God wants to. What we recognize in these practices, just like what we recognize here at this table, is that it's something you have to receive. That only by peeling back those layers of saying what your accomplishments are, of, of putting those aside and resting in that sense of quiet and stillness, do we begin to sense for the first time that God is already here. That we are not going to beat God anywhere because God is already out in front of us. God is already leading us along. And it's in the graciousness of that recognition that this is almost something that takes over us as we do it. That it becomes a practice where we don't have to worry so much about accomplishing it or achieving it. 
but it becomes a practice where we rest in it and where we find that God's graciousness is given to us, both in our desolation and as our consolation. We're going to go to the table in just a minute. Mark and Tim and Dale are going to play us now two songs that we're going to join in with of consolation. And you'll notice that movement of wherever you find yourself tonight, this movement of whether it's desolation or consolation, that that table is already set for you. And that as we come together as a community to break bread with one another, to hand it to one another saying the body of Christ broken for you and the the blood of Christ shed for you, we celebrate together the fact that this is not something we accomplish, but it is hard work God invites us into where we find God is already out in front of us. Come now in a few minutes to the table to receive that graciousness. And on your way there, receive these songs of consolation. And from there, go out into the world as those people who know that God is already there, working before we even find what it is he's doing. Amen. So, in my conversations with Tim this week, um, Tim Condor, Tim Carlos, is not, not, not this conversation, but other conversations. Um, with Tim Condor this week, we, we were talking about what, um, in sort of imagining what songs of consolation might look like, was sort of saying, well, what, what are some places um, that, you can, that you can see where you would say that this is sort of the unmistakable presence of God, um, even in the midst of whatever your desolation is? What are the places you can see that are like, okay, this is a thumbprint of God on this, um, on this event? So I, I thought right, right away of the Magnificat, uh, which we always sing every week during Advent. And this past year, especially, we sang different versions of it every week. And so I thought, wow, it would be really interesting to do that, you know, at the end of July. Um, and we still have several months away before we get to Advent. I thought this is, this is one of those places, this is one of those moments um, in history where we can see sort of God's unmistakable presence in entering the world. So some of you were here when we did this version. Some of you were not. It was right before Christmas that we did this. So um, join in when it starts to make sense. It's very repetitive. Um, but as you start to get it, please, please join in with us.
since we've done this one but we've done it a few months ago if you remember it join in
Thank you. 